So the background of the Gospel of Mark, just by way of reminder, Mark is the author and he's writing to predominantly a Gentile church. And this church is living under the rulership of Caesar Nero. And even as Kevin mentioned in his sermon this morning, um, Nero was a wicked ruler. He was a tyrant. He sought to destroy the church. So throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus had opposition from different groups of religious leaders, whether it be the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, or the Herodians, who many times did join together, although they had different worldviews, for the sake of destroying Jesus. So they posed questions to Jesus, such as, why did he eat with sinners? Also, why did his disciples hit grain on the Sabbath? And also, why did they not fast like the disciples of John? It's only in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, when they all came together, they decided that they would destroy Jesus. Not only seek to destroy him from people seeing him as an authority figure, but they would seek to destroy him from the fact to physically like, to kill him. So this leads us to our first point. Believer, approach your unbelieving neighbor with the expectancy that today they might believe. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, we begin to see the ending of one dispute and the possible commencement of a dialogue between Jesus and a scribe. Now, this is the third conversation that Jesus was having for the day, and it could possibly be a dispute. So the first question that Jesus had was, should the Jews pay Caesar? The second one was pertaining to the resurrection. And now it was this conversation that was seeking to start in verse 28. And they asked ask him, what is the greatest command? So two points we should look here at Jesus' response to this scripture. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, this grouping of persons plotted to kill Jesus constantly. Not only on this day, but even prior to this day. They were in constant opposition against Jesus, trying to remove him as the Messiah from the minds of persons. Therefore, it would not be far-fetched for us to think that this could possibly be another trap. He wasn't really seeking to Ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The scribe posed a question asking, which commandment is most important of all? And Jesus' response was referenced Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he sums, summed up the Ten Commandments, which we would get to. So we, as Christians, should disagree in principle but could possibly relate to the fact if Jesus sought either to ignore this scribe or if to answer, that, answer him partially because this was coming from a grouping of persons that constantly kept, that constantly wanted to destroy Jesus. They, wanted, they opposed him and sought his physical destruction also. Yet, this is not how Jesus responds. He answered him referencing a familiar portion of scripture within the Old Testament that the Jews could resonate, that this Jew could resonate with. And then he answered him openly and honestly. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Even afterwards, 
Jesus saw his response and sought to offer a set of encouragement basically to him. We all could possibly relate to the fact that we have all had opposition from unbelievers. Whether it came to our sharing the gospel or our profession of faith. Whether it be cruel jokes or blasphemy towards Christ. Or comments to belittle your faith or your intellect. We all possibly have experienced this. Yet Christ's example here we should apply to our evangelistic efforts display our various fears. Rather than becoming angry at a person who seeks to insult you, becoming bitter at a person who seeks to belittle your intellect, or seeking to get the last word, or responding in a borderline insulting way, we should humble ourselves and begin each conversation, not with ignorance of a past conversation that we had, but with a calm head and heart, praying for those, this person who has sought to oppose Christ before, that God would grant them repentance, that he would shine his glorious light into their hearts. So if God does not delight in the death of the wicked, neither should we. We do not know at which point God will save a sinner. No one knows. So we should approach each conversation, even with the person who is the most repetitive, even after we have labored on a point and sought to deal with it well, yet they use this opposition to say this is why you do not believe Christ. We should approach each and every one of these conversations with the understanding that today could be they're there for salvation. Have the expectancy that God could save them today. Even if you have been the laughing stock at your workplace, community, or whatever sphere you have been in for the past couple of years, don't let previous gospel conversation with a listener or towards a group of persons who are hostile towards Christ or hostile towards the gospel make you nasty as you share the gospel with them in the future. Loving your neighbor is shown in multiple ways throughout the scripture. Yet one evidence of love for a neighbor is not only sharing the gospel with them, but praying for them, praying that God would open their eyes that they would come to Christ. However, unlike Christ, we fail at keeping God's commands, whether it be loving our neighbor or loving God. All men know God's law. God's law is written upon all persons' hearts. Jesus' answer towards what is the greatest commandment is broken down in a clear statement of who God is, and then it sums up the Ten Commandments. God is to be loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or to put it simply, God is to be loved with our total self. So Jesus' statement here points out our obligation to God, which spans the first four commandments, which is loving God, then our obligation to our neighbor, which points out the last six commandments. However, there are false beliefs when it comes to the law of God. And possibly you have heard it before from those who have a secular or, or liberal view. Christians should not force 
their way of thinking upon the world. They shouldn't, just because God is your God or Yahweh is your God, he's not my God. Therefore, we should have secular laws uh, for, since all persons in the land are not believers. However, although all persons are not believers, although Yahweh is not all, per, is not all persons God, all people will be judged by God's law. The Muslim who has spent his entire life praying several times a day, worshiping Allah, will be judged by the one and true living God. The man who has never heard the gospel, who has never heard of Christ, he will also be judged by the true and living God. And you might look at me and say, well, this is unfair. The man has never heard the gospel. However, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, seeks to deal with this. And it reads, This show that the words of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their, con and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Uh, sorry, let me start from verse 14, just so you get the surrounding context. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the word of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, all persons everywhere have the law of God written upon their heart. So there's no one without excuse. So the village thief who lives in a remote place, whether it is in the Amazon jungle, he is not praised for stealing from his tribesmen. The man who has slept with another tribesman's wife or who murders another, he is not praised, but that is seen as an immoral act. They know that it's immoral because God's law is written on their hearts. Therefore, no one is without excuse. Loving God looks like having no other God before him, or not misusing his name. If we love our neighbor, we should not seek to kill or to steal from them. Yet, which person could say that they love God perfectly? We have persons who have, all persons have God's law written upon their hearts. And then there are persons like us who have the word of God. We know what the word of God says and what God commands, what he likes and what he dislikes. And the reality is no person can say that they have kept God's law perfectly. We do not love God with all our mind, heart, soul and strength. Since we break direct obligations to God and blaspheme his name. Or create idols, whether it be physical idols, or create idols with our minds. We also don't keep our obligation to our neighbor since we lie, we steal, and we also commit adultery. We are indeed lawbreakers. All lawbreakers are rightly deserving of death. As the Bible states, for the wages of sin is death. Just as a man who has done a day's work is deserving of a wage,
for all his efforts, and he's rightly owed this wage. Those who break the law of God are rightly deserving of the penalty of death. Their works are sin, and their wages are death. So we deserve the wrath of God for what we have done. Yet, in Romans, the verse just doesn't end for the wages of sin is death, but continues and states, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There is good news. Christ came for sinners. God loves sinners first, and it has never been the opposite way. For sinners love sin and oppose that which will shine light upon their evil works. Jesus Christ, through his atoning work on the cross, has freed the guilty from being slaves to sin. Therefore, I will clean up my life and then come to Christ is a wrong view. Rather, it should be, I will come to Christ and he will clean me and make me new and enable me to love him. So for the scribe who agreed with Christ on what is the greatest commandment, we can consider two conclusions about this scribe's life. Either he was on the way to becoming a believer, given Jesus' statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God, or he knew the religion well, but he never committed himself. So different commentators think differently about what happened to this scribe. Uh, whether he became a believer or not. Some thought because they never heard about this scribe afterwards that he possibly did not commit himself to Christ. And others think after hearing Jesus' statement towards him that he possibly did. However, both schools of thought saw that this man at the point of asking the question was outside the faith. So my first point spoke to how we ought to proclaim the gospel. How we should have an expectancy that this person could possibly come to Christ despite their past, despite their past objections towards Christ. Now I'll speak to those who have been in groups that have constantly rejected Christ. So let the scribe who was in the presence of persons who opposed Christ, which were other scribes and the Pharisees and Herodians, and sought his destruction, there are many persons who grew up having other views of Christ. Whether it be Muslims, Catholics, Jehovah Witnesses, Hebrew, Israelites, or Mormons who are not Christians. This can also include those who at this moment have not given a thought towards Christ or the gospel. Yet, despite the rejection of the gospel from those who are around you, you possibly have given thoughts to Christ. You possibly, whether Muslim, Catholic, Jehovah Witness, you have heard what Christians have said about Jesus Christ. The evidence of God is undeniable. Plus, deep down inside, we know that we are lawbreakers. Don't suppress the truth. Despite rejection from family or friends, or whoever in your spirit, come to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus responds to Peter saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father 
our children, our lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice that the call to follow Christ bids you to leave that which might be opposing Christ, that your old self might have possibly been comfortable with. Yet, the promise is that you will receive more in this life. And this is a mean prosperity, health, wealth, but it means you will have brothers and sisters from different nations as you are now a part of the universal church. But you will also have those persons who live closer to you, who are believers, who are part of your local church. And this is why church membership is so important. The scribe, although he would be leaving, if he believed, he would be leaving the grouping that sought Jesus' destruction, and possibly the one now who they would also seek to destroy would have not been alone. Likewise, unbeliever, you who know the biblical truth, who deep down inside know that Jesus is the way, come to Jesus. Only Christ can set you free from being a slave to sin. So to the believer, the last point is, a true believer actually longs to love God with their entire being. So there can be a wrong attitude towards sin. One that is stated possibly by a professing believer, which says, I am a sinner. I can do no better. Wretched man that I am. I am not justified by the law. So sin, and although they might not say it verbally, we think in our minds, well, sin is okay. However, the right view states that although sin remains in us, that although we do not keep God's law perfectly, a believer should want, they should long for, they should desire and find joy in actually keeping the commands of God. God has actually freed you from the power of sin. You actually now have free will to choose to do that which is good. Seeking to love God with your whole heart is a delight for those who are in Christ, as David stated in Psalm 1-2. Those who don't dwell with the wicked and who hate sinning against God do such because they delight in God's law. Delighting in God's law is possible at justification, but it's also a process that happens as sanctification takes place in our lives. So Philippians 1, 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, just as, you, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do, to act on behalf of his good purpose. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12, as it speaks to our love for our neighbor. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you. We grow in our love for God and our love for people. Therefore, dive into the means of grace. 
These are what God has put in place for you to mature you in Christ and help you to delight in his law. By God's grace, you're actually able to keep the law of God. This knowledge should be upon our hearts as we seek to fight sin daily and seek to be obedient to God.